First Timothy chapter five, we're looking at supporting a functional family, supporting a functional family because pillars are meant to support. That's what they do. They uphold. We've been looking through this book with the idea of pillars. Pillars comes from this verse, chapter three, verse 14. Paul's writing because I hope to come to you, Timothy, soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, which Paul's prone to do, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And the idea of a pillar is that these are people in the church. Now, here he's saying that the church itself is a pillar, but the church itself is held up by pillars. And pillars are people who have a type of character, a type of godliness, and a type of leadership that are upholding and supporting the church. And they are, they are opening the way for young generations to come in and follow Jesus. And they are holding it up for those that are in the church to be uh, shepherded and guarded and guided and fed. Pillars are very important, especially in a day where we have very weak pillars in society. We need a church full of strong pillars, full of strong people and leadership. We looked at in the first time Paul was hewing Timothy to be a pillar because he's a second half-life person. He wants to see these first half-lifers become second half-lifers. He's hewing Timothy to be a good pillar, a good leader in the church. And the second one, we learned that pillars need to be grounded. So pillars are passing on everything they know to new pillars. Pillars are grounded. All pillars must have a foundation. They're grounded. And then now we're looking at how pillars support. They hold something up. And here we see that the leaders of a church are supportive of their family their church family Um, that's what makes a family functional they support we don't want a dysfunctional family in the church we want a functional family in the church now our church looks as i look around you know in america it seems to me that churches are beginning to look a lot like our families and i mean that in a very sad way we have a lot of dysfunctional families in america and we, we know the stats, how the divorce rates are going up. And there's a lot of um, parents who have no business being parents. And we see a lot of dysfunctional families. And unfortunately, we see this lack of ability to support members of the same family and to care for one another coming into the church. We see this in generational battles. We see this in theological battles. And we just frankly see this in us buying our American culture individualism. We go into church and things all about me and I'm a consumer, a spiritual consumer, and I'm not a contributor and I don't care about the people around me. And uh, it's proven by the fact that some of us get very uncomfortable when we have to share prayer requests like Pastor Mike just challenged you to do. And our churches are beginning to look very dysfunctional. There's not a lot of function. There's not a lot of support happening. It's just filter in, feed me, filter out. So this is sad. And I think the reason we're seeing churches beginning to look like our families is because there is definitely a tie in there, isn't there? Because our churches are made up of people who are part of families. And so when we have bad parents who are now growing up and in the church and some of them becoming leaders in the church, we have bad churches. And this is the same thing with youth. You know, Uh, one of the struggles of doing youth ministry is you realize really quickly that parents expect you to raise their kids. 
I'm serious. The parents take care of the school part or whatever, and often they leave that to the principal and the teacher. Uh, the parents do. I don't know what they do. Some of them do. They feed them, I guess, at home. And then they're like, okay, God's stuff, here, take them. You know, my kid did this. You, tell, you talk to him. Like, oh, don't you want to discipline your kid? Like, this is an opportunity to be a parent. You know, so youth pastors are really often getting a lot of stress and strain on them because we aren't supporting our own families. And it's breaking down inside the church, too. We're trying to make the church something it was never meant to be. And this is part of what we have going on. So the reason I say this and the reason we're talking about supporting a functional family is because some of the things Paul talks in here may not have direct applications to us. But the basic concept he's going to be saying is, uh, Timothy, support the weaker ones in the church. Look for the people that you can support and those that you don't need to be supporting. So there's not too much stress and strain on the function of this family. So there's a mindfulness of the different groups and different types of people that Paul's directing Timothy toward. So we'll look at the, the support members that Timothy needs to be supporting, uh, support the members of the church, and then model the values of this family. So like any family, we need to support one another and then we need to model the values of this family. And that's another thing pillars must do. They not only support the whole facility, the, the building, but they model what the building's about. And so those are the, I see the things that are going to come out of this. So let's go ahead and tread through this as, diff, as, as hard as this may be. <clears throat> All right, chapter 5, verse 1. So do not rebuke an older man, but encourage... <laughs> Well, that's an early amen right there. Do not rebuke a less young man, as we've been saying, but encourage him as you would a father, young men as brothers, old women as mothers, young women as sisters in all purity. Now, this is good. We often think of pillars as always being the, the less young. And often that's true because they have experience and they've gone through the battles. However, we do see that often they can be somewhere in the middle of the pack as Timothy is. Because Paul has to instruct Timothy, how do you treat those who are older than you? Well, that's, that wasn't something you probably would have thought of when you're thinking of him instructing a leader. And then how do you treat those younger than yourself? Right here is one of the key things to helping support the family, a a functional family, is don't let the pillars get power to their head. And that can happen, especially with a younger leader. They can kind of get power crazy and get all, this is my identity and I'm all hot and you're not because I am the wave the magic wand and you don't. And Paul's telling him, Timothy, you need to understand where the age groups are and treat them both with reverence and respect. First, you, uh, it can appear sometimes that the less young are less relevant because they don't know what a podcast is. It can appear that way at times. But Timothy, don't focus on what they can't do or what they don't get. Start looking for what they can do and what they do get because they get a lot more than you do because they've been through a lot more life than you have. So Timothy, don't rebuke your elders. Be very uh, gracious with them and give them the benefit of the doubt. Encourage them as you would a father. And, you know, that's really, I think that's a huge phrase there, as you would a father. I think about how I would talk to my father if there was something a little amiss. And there's definitely a certain attitude I wouldn't carry around him. 
especially in my younger days, right? There's a, there were some consequences. And this is what we need to begin to do is we need to begin to see those who are of another generation, the one above us as fathers. And they must be treated with that type of reverence. And then for the generation under us, they aren't just punks. They're brothers, they're sisters, and we need to handle that the same way. Now, I'm not sure that Paul was thinking the way you fight over a toy as brothers and sisters, but the way that you understand that you're part of a family. And if my sister was a punk, well, I would help straighten her out a bit. So that's, he's, he's giving them advice to how, how do you support the family, especially with multiple age ranges and that's the key. Understand that's a family. Begin to see the older as fathers and mothers and the children as brothers and sisters. And we can work with that as we support one another. Now, in verse 3, we move towards the widows. And I'm going to tell you up front right now to make this simple. Because he kind of says a lot and he circles around the issue a couple times. Uh, but what he's re- the bottom line is, if you were to do a reader's digest of this section on widows, Paul is simply going to say, Timothy... Support the true widows and let their family members support the other widows. All right. So you have to understand what a true widow is and then what another widow is. And so he's going to give those qualifications. In short, a true widow is someone, it's a woman who does not have any family that they can call upon for help. And they are past the age, the marriageable age. That's a true widow. They have no help. Paul, Timothy, Paul says, take them and let the church support them. Now, if they are young, let them get married. That's not just a, oh, women should get married. So tell them to just be a woman. You know, that's not some sexist thing he's doing. You think about this for a second. If Timothy is bringing in a ton of young widows at a marriageable age into the church, how does that look on the outside? Hmm, These young pastors with a bunch of young single ladies taking them in freely. So it's actually a very wise suggestion that Timothy understand the young ones that can be married. Look, don't put more stress and strain on the church. Don't make it look bad on the outside. Let them encourage them to get married. That's how they can be supported. Um, so a true, we've seen what a true widow is and what a not true widow is. A, tr- a not true widow can get married again. And another instance is if there is a widow who has family that can support her, the family needs to support her. And that's, that's the bottom line. So he's really trying to save the... He's a penny pincher here. Let the church spend the money where it needs to and not to support everybody who, need, who wants it if they can find other means. So we'll, we'll dig into a couple of these verses. Verse 3, 5, 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households to make some return to their parents. In other words, if the widow has children and they are of age, let the children support their mother. And that's very, and he says, you know, let them pay their dues. That's, it's a very good practice. And by the way, if you guys don't know, Pastor Mike is a great example, and Mary, of what they've been doing with uh, Mary's parents, and Mike has done this also with his own parents. They have made life changes to help support their parents and not make that somebody else's burden. So that's a very biblical thing to do right there. And you have a pillar to give you an example. <laughs> I know you don't like it when I do that. So verse five, she who is truly a widow 
left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she is, uh, that's a true widow. But she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. That may be an an allusion to a widow who would say, well, I need to find livelihood somewhere, so I'll be someone's mistress. That self-indulgent life. Well, she's dead while she lives. That's no life at all, especially in the kingdom of God. So he's saying, you know, see, before you take them in, see what they're doing with their life right now. <laughs> um, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa, those are some strong words. If you do not provide for your relatives, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> now, I've heard this verse abused horribly and it's gone something along the lines of if you are a male and you are not working or not providing enough income. Some have gone as far to say if your wife is making more than you, then you're not providing for your family and you are uh, denying the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. Whoa, people. Whoa, whoa. Context, context, context. We just you guys know because we're doing this. He's talking about widows here. So the key here is to understand if there is a family that refuses to support a widow that is in their own blood relation, that family is worse off than unbelievers just to cast off one of their helpless own and say, whatever. That is what Paul's talking about. See, there are situations in America where men sometimes can't get the job they need to support their family. And our economy has been a little tight at times. So that happens. And that is this verse is not to give you a huge guilt trip. Now, it would obviously not, and I'm not saying your laziness is good if anybody's lazy and doesn't work, but if something happens and you can't provide, this is not God frowning on you saying, well, get your act together, Buster, because you're on the verge of hell. This is not what that verse is talking about. So Paul, again, is simply calling for families to be families before the burden is put on the church. So, nine. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and a good reputation. So let her be enrolled if she is 60 and over. Um, Enrolled means she would become part of the church staff, it would seem. So she comes on and the church literally supports her. Now, there's a, there's a give and take here. She becomes a prayer warrior for the church, it's going to say in a bit, uh, so that she has a specific role. And man, I, I was reading this and drinking and daydreaming and saying, wouldn't that be awesome if more churches had people who were on staff dedicated to praying all the time? I mean, what would that look like? And that might be a really cool way to support people. I just, just thinking I'm not a businessman by any means. So I don't know if that's even feasible, but but, uh, that would be really neat. And that's, it seems to be the setup that they had going on there. So why does though Paul say above 60? Well, we've already talked about that. If they are younger than and can get married, let them get married, Timothy. But if they're above 60, well, then they're probably in a desperate situation and they may not have many relatives around. Now, the number 60, this is one of those things where we have to kind of take with a grain of salt. Is that a universal code? Like every society, it must be over 60, including America. Or is this just one of those things where in Ephesus, this seemed to be a good age number because of the lifespan of some people and and the timing of when uh, most males died off. And it it happened a lot. I mean, the average lifespan was about 30 to 40 years of this time. And that might be generous. Some of it was younger. So there's... 
you know, our lifespans are longer. Does this mean our number needs to be higher? Is there supposed to be a certain number? Or are you supposed to just sort of sense this out? These are good questions. So this is why I say some of this is not necessarily to be law for the church. And that's why it's not all directly applicable. But the concept of learning to support one another is important. And that's what Paul is, again, emphasizing. Pillars support a functional family. Um, so there you see in verse 11, um, refuse to enroll younger widows when their passions draw them away from Christ and desire to marry, they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. It would seem that when you became a widow supported by the church, you kind of entered, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding, yeah, um, but it's sort of like you become part of a, a, a group in which you're supposed to be this for life with the church. They're supporting you. And so Paul's basically saying, don't like put everything in this woman and support her. And then she all of a sudden, I don't want to get married. I met this guy. And he's saying, don't let that fickleness happen. Okay, so just take on widows who can actually be devoted to this. Uh, that's that's part of what that's saying there. So denying the faith doesn't necessarily mean they're, you know, giving up on Jesus. It just means that they denied what he brought them in to do as having these prayer warriors on board. Uh, verse 13, beside that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. <laughs> so if they don't, you know, if he's taking on too many people, then these ladies are going to have nothing to do. And they're going to go around from each house to house to house where the church is met and kind of just spread rumors and talk and talk and talk. And it could be that this was actually happening because we saw before where Paul was telling Timothy, be careful about women having authority with teaching, because it may have been that it was these widows who were either receiving the false teachings from some of these false leaders. And then they go from house to house and spread it for them pretty easy work right there or they themselves were misunderstanding things and they were trying to as they go to house to house they were confusing a lot of people and paul's saying timothy just you know what if they're young enough just let them get married so we avoid this gossiping stuff try to make sure we only have as many as necessary so just some things are working through there i think we have our own things too Okay, so I would have that younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give adversary, give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, in 17, so that's basically the, uh, the widow section. In 17, another group of people to support. So we've seen support the different generations in different ways. Support the widows who are truly widows. Now, 17, let the elders, so now support the elders. Who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, the word elder here, every single commentary agreed, is not limited to a person of older age. The word elder here is referring to leadership. And you see that being used in Titus as well. That elders can refer to those who simply have a position over others. And so Paul here is saying, hey, make sure that you support them, especially the teachers of the word. They need to have double honor. Now, what does double honor mean? Uh, double honor would refer to honoring them in two different ways at the same time. So honoring them, yes, because they're your leaders. And so giving them that respect, but also honoring them in the same sense that he used the word already in five, verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. 
And in that context, we learned that honoring them included supporting them with their needs and finances. So to the elders, he's saying, give them double honor. So support them financially and give them reverence and respect. That's how you can support your leaders in the church. So here he gives um, now his reasons for this in 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So the ox gets rewarded while it works. And that's from the Old Testament. And then the laborer deserves his wages attributed to Jesus. So there's his reasoning for that. Do not, verse 19. Now, here's how you protect. Part of how you support your elders is also 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, we've heard some vicious rumors about this pastor, about this leader, um, Tim, Timothy, Paul says, don't believe every rumor you hear about your leaders. You need to have multiple witnesses before you even consider it as being legitimate. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things about all kinds of people from one person. The case gets a lot more serious when I hear it from a couple people and a few people. And like, okay, well, maybe there's something here. Of course, witnesses can, you know, they can collaborate and tell the same story. But the point is, you can save yourself a lot of heartache and witch hunting if you at least let a few people tell you before you have to feel like we've got to do something about this, you know? So he's saying, like, we need to support our leaders, not constantly attack and undermine them. They need our support. So make sure before we complain about them that we have good ground for dealing with it. Now, there will be times when there's a legitimate complaint. He doesn't ignore that either. Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Ooh. So tonight we're going to call Pastor Mike up here. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So 21. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now, Timothy, how do you elect some leaders? 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the signs uh, in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, 23 gets interesting. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Timothy is given permission by Paul to drink wine. Uh, apparently, this was a medicinal use for his stomach. And then in verse 20. Four, the signs of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the, I'm sorry, the sins, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. His point is, Timothy, keep yourself pure. Don't follow these false teachers and their sins. So don't be quick to lay hands on somebody. Observe them and see, are their ways pure too? Because sometimes sins are are obvious but he's saying sometimes they come out much later in life other times good works are not obvious and sometimes they are but they will come out later in life so don't always go off your first impulse with people and sometimes we see someone oh they're so charismatic and look at the people follow them we're like we're quick to crown them come lead us and then later we find out what we got stuck with um (laughs) But other, we need to be more careful about that and not be deceived by just impressions and what comes across. We need to watch truly. Uh, faithfulness is huge. How are they on a consistent basis? Are they faithful to the faith? What are you going to expect on a consistent basis? 
Now, uh, regarding the wine again, when he tells him not to, uh, keep, when he tells him in 22 to keep yourself pure, it's just interesting food for thought or drink for thought, I guess. <laughs> in 23, um, Paul could be clarifying what he means by keep yourself pure. And he says, I don't mean abstain completely from the alcohol that you need or the wine that you need for your health's sake, because to me, that's not what purity is about. It could be because what he had dealt with in chapter four is that the false teachers were dealing with saying that uh, there are tons of foods you can't eat because somehow food defiles your godliness. And so Paul here is saying, Timothy, don't back down. Don't buy into their form of purity. Keep what you know is truly purity and don't stop drinking just because they tell you you can't. Don't cave into their pressure. That might be something he's saying. But nonetheless, Paul tells him that this is for your health benefit. So Timothy needed that. And of course, water then was not always clean. So a little bit of fermentation would purify that which he was drinking. So there's lots of things we can talk about, but we got more to say other than harping on this. So chapter 6, verse 1. So we've seen uh, the members that are to be supported. Generations deal with, you know, give them respect and treat them like brothers and sisters. Raise them up. Uh, We saw the widows. uh, Give your energy and resources to those who are truly widows. And then we've seen the leaders, the elders. You support them financially, but you also support them by not listening to rumors and gossip. And when there is a problem, you deal with it for the sake of the rest of the family. Now, chapter 6, we're going to look at some of the values that happen, that uh, pillars should be modeling. And this is based a lot on finances. So 6 verse, the end of 2. Teach and urge these things. Verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So now he's going to start to address the false teachers and they're greedy people. Greediness is their code. So he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, verse five, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, Timothy, the false teachers in your midst, look out for them because they're going to be quick to want to have arguments and dissensions and the things they teach or the things they say. They're going to be dividing people. And you can always tell when somebody thinks they're right and everyone else is wrong is because they get very argumentative and they get very absolute on you and they don't even listen to you. It's all about what they have to say, not about what you want to say. And so it's very easy to spot, Timothy. Look out for them. Now, their motive is thinking that what they can teach will give them some sort of income. So on one hand, we have this whole give honor to your elders, support them financially. And then on the other hand, you have this, well, but be careful because some of them are in it just for the money and you don't want them. Now, in verse 6, Paul's going to start addressing this. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. So look, they're right. You know, if, you're, if you want to gain something... Be a teacher of the word. You're going to gain a lot, but it may not necessarily be money. If you are godly with contentment, you're going to gain everything in the world. You're going to gain peace. And that's one of the things that Paul is just kind of turning this on its head, you know. Oh, yes, there is gain in the church, but it's not necessarily financial. 
4, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Whoa. Merry Christmas. How do you feel now? (laughs) Now, (laughs) I'm sure most of us are kind of past that disappointment. I didn't get what I wanted for Christmas. And I'm kind of at the point where it's like, just give me one thing. It's fine. But um, how many of us are like, but I really want this. And I hope my wife knows. (laughs) No, with food and clothing, we will be content. Wow. That's all you need, huh? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, we need to realize that this is not going to, before we go into this, this is not a, a shooting at all the rich people in the world. All right? A lot of missions cannot exist without people that have some extra money. A lot of what happens in the world, in the gospel, and the good, and the social justice that we try to bring to third world countries, none of this can happen if people don't have a little extra. But then again, maybe they wouldn't be there if everyone didn't, you know. Um, So this is not going to shoot at them. But notice the key here is those who desire, or in other words, those who lust after being rich. Those who lust after having more than they need. That's who this is addressing. I like these false teachers. (laughs) But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now that is there in verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That was a proverb of the day. Paul is actually saying something that everybody had heard. It was one of those street proverbs. We have them around, you know, in our lives too. So, and the thing that you know about proverbs is proverbs are never meant to be universal truths. They're meant to be teaching tools. So for example, um, uh, he's not saying that every single evil in the world is because somebody wanted to be rich. Although it could be a lot of the evil. His point is uh, Proverbs are often exaggerations to make their point. They're teaching tools. So he's he's really pointing out the fact that, look, if you desire to be rich, it's just going to lead to nothing but harm. It's not always a good thing. And we have, of course, we get first row observation of this in America. ton of rich people who are extremely miserable. And we can see that. And oftentimes, the desire for richness um, leads you to do stupid things. And it leads you to sin, and it leads you to corruption. And you can actually wreck your life, not just be miserable because you thought money would answer your problems, but you can actually get yourself into problems. Okay, so, verse 11. Some instruction to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. While you run from them, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This is a miniature type of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? Interesting. He didn't just say prefer them, pursue them. What does it take, you know, to pursue that list? And are we just kind of sitting back saying, well, at least I don't do that. Or are we actually seeking to grow and pursue in these things? Now, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Horribly uh, applied verse at times. (laughs) 
This is not jihad by any means. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is not, okay, well, if you have false teachers, um, start physically dealing with it. This is not a violent thing at all. In fact, the Greek, the wording for fight the good fight is actually an athletic term. So it would be more like a boxing term. And the idea there is not necessarily go and punch people out, but to keep on going as the, it's the boxer who lasts the longest that wins, not necessarily the one who punches people the hardest. So the ideas of endurance, and some even suggest that Paul has nothing in mind whatsoever boxing. It might even be referencing to a race. Just race the good race with all endurance. Just keep going, Timothy. Don't quit. So this is proper support coming from Paul to Timothy. Fight the good fight of the faith. Keep on going. Don't give it up. It's tough sometimes to be in the arena. And you're going to fail in the arena. And you're going to get hurt. But Timothy, that is no excuse to just walk out. Keep going. And sometimes we need, because we don't do this to ourselves. We don't tell ourselves, keep going. It's so painful. I love it. We need other people to tell us that. And so Timothy's getting the kick. You know, keep on at it, man. And man, I would tell you, it would be so helpful for more of our church leaders to get that kind of encouragement and exhortation from others. Because there are so many that feel lonely and they just want to quit. It's hard and it is lonely. Not everybody gets it. They kind of treat you with this like, ooh, you're an angel. I can't, I don't want to talk to you. Like, um, but Paul is helping Timothy go, buddy, go take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession, the presence of many witnesses. So Timothy, remember, we all saw you say, I believe in Jesus. I want to be a pastor. Remember that we're all rooting for you. 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who is his testimony be- Uh, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Jesus didn't back down. Even as he's about to die, he kept on standing up for who he was even before Pilate to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Timothy, when the going gets tough, remember that. <laughs> remember Jesus in his testimony, how he held to his testimony even to the cross and how he's coming back. So keep going because he's coming back. This won't be forever. And remember who your God is. That's who you're standing before and that's who you're standing for. So keep going, Timothy. That's an amazing, climactic poetic paul's waxing theological <laughs> he's just going going and man timothy and the church listening to this must be like yeah let's go get him <laughs> so finally in 17 some final i think paul here kind of like maybe is a little harsh about the riches so let me address those who are already rich 17 as for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on god who, in, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So a rich Christian is not an oxymoron. But a rich Christian who acts like he's better than everyone else, and you are too below me, or that job is too below me, because you're wealthy, that is an oxymoron for a Christian. Now, I don't mean to offend anybody who's an attorney or who knows an attorney, 
but I'm just going to stereotype for a second. So understand me. I worked with attorneys for a year in Orange County and uh, not, not direct. I didn't have like a suit and tie job at all. Uh, but I worked with them on the phone and I ran errands for them and they can, um, because I made about minimum wage and I wore a polo show shirt and jeans and they made about 10 grand plus a month and you know, they were very nice clothes. And they, when you would have to call them with a problem with their document, they were uh, very unhappy to hear who you were and that there was a problem. And like, why are you wasting my time? And I get it. They're busy. I totally get it. But there was also this moment, and we all loved this so much. We, we got such a kick out. We're so evil. <laughs> there were the moments when, I don't know, okay, it's like this. You, you, get, you go to, we, we served a bunch of law firms. They would give us their work, stacks of work. And we would go to the courts, and we would go to the clerks in their windows, and we would file them. Sometimes we'd go to the judges and give them the judges. We just did the dirty work for the lawyers. So we did all that. And every now and then, you would see a well-dressed person come in who looked lost. And we knew instantly <laughs> this poor attorney couldn't hire one of us to do this for them <laughs> or they were, you know, at the deadline. They want to make sure that they had to do it right then. So they come in and they're always, they're kind of like, I don't know. Um, they have to stand in line and they get really upset about that. Like, what do you mean? I can't get to the front line. Literally. What do you mean? I have to wait in line. Uh, sorry, but you got to wait with polo shirt. <laughs> Yeah, anyways, you could go on and on. That's the attitude, though, that should not be becoming of a Christian. Just because you have accomplished something or you make a certain amount of income, that's not how you support a family. This family, we would not be supported by that attitude, no matter who you are and what you can do in court. We need down-to-earth people who are willing to say, you know what? I'm not putting my hope in my riches and I'm not haughty because of my riches. I'm putting my hope in God and I boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I am where I am because God has privileged me with where I am, not so that I can live a high life, although you can enjoy the fruit of your labor, but so that I can also give so much to the rest of the world that needs more. I mean, what a privileged position to serve God in. So in 18, they are to do good. They're rich again. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, man, be with all that that you have, be a pillar. Don't assume because of my bank account, I'm a pillar already. We don't want that. We want people who actually model the values of the church. So very lastly to Timothy. So that's all done. Oh, Timothy, verse 20. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. It's the false teachers. Don't even get into their discussions. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I wonder if he was chuckling there. <laughs> Grace be with you, Timothy. <laughs> Good luck, in other words. <laughs> now, so we've seen what he deals with. The money part is very applicational for us. Uh, the widow part, yes, we have widows. Yes, we can support some, but that's not as direct because widows are far less common than they were in the past. But who are those people that, you know, need real support that don't have anybody and how can they be supported? 
But even a step further from that, again, is this whole idea of support. Paul is explaining to Timothy from the beginning, we're a family, so model the values and support its members. Model its values and support its members. And maybe if we did this well and we found out what that looked like in this context, we wouldn't see our church reflecting the dysfunctional families of America. But the church would be a functional family. And even so much so that people are like, well, these people know how to get along. My family, I don't even know what is going on with my family. And how many youth love youth group? Because for them, it's a refuge from a dysfunctional family. I mean, what it could be if the members learn to support one another and to model the values. If we had pillars that stood up and did that and we had people that supported them and each other, what the church could be. This is why I, I, I think this is so huge because this is the belief I see in the world is that we have many, many sons and daughters who are in desperate need for spiritual mothers and fathers. We need, in other words, mentors, mentors wanted. We need people who pour into other people. We need that kind of support. Support isn't always encouragement. It isn't always financial, but it's often just pouring into another person's life and letting them know I'm with you, not against you. I want to see the best for you. And I'm, I'm speaking to a room of a lot of experience. And the kind of mentorship we can pass on would be the most precious gift we can leave behind. You know, you, your body will die. Your name may be forgotten, but the lessons you pass on will go for a whole nother life. And if they do the same as you modeled, it will go for another life. That is true legacy. That's a true pillar. We have a world full of sons and daughters desperately yearning for spiritual mothers and fathers. And this is what we have in this book so beautifully made for us. At the very beginning, you may remember Mike reading it to us. Uh, Timothy 1 verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. You know, you watch in Acts all the things Paul does. Timothy's right there with him all the way. This is mentorship. It doesn't always have to be Luke Skywalker and um, Yoda. What's his name? Oh, it's embarrassing. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be that kind of relationship where it's this constant lesson, lesson, lesson. Use the force, Luke. It's not always like that. (laughs) Mentorship can be as simple as that author, that children's author who comes in and sees a kid doodling and says, wow, you're a great cartoonist. Boop, changes life. This is the true story of a current uh, children's book author because someone came and said, you're a great cartoonist. And he says that that for him was mentorship. Little things we can do. Here's the idea. Functional families receive support. It's why they function. But dysfunctional families lack support. There is no pillar to hold it up. And that's why it crumbles. And that's why it doesn't function. And the church, I see a plea in this book for pillars who will support all generations and all people to help make a functional family. And I think that this word support is key. It is what it is what makes a dysfunctional group turn into a functional group. That climatic shift, that hinge is support. Um, we can't underestimate it. And I think for Timothy, this letter is our example of support. Can you imagine Timothy just being left there 
younger than a lot of people. He hasn't really lived in Ephesus. He's visited it. And then he has to go around and tell people, you are teaching false doctrine. Oh, you know where I have my degree. You're teaching false doctrine. And they're like arguing with him. And well, we're older. We've been here longer. We know this and that. We know so-and-so. This person has money. We have him on our side. What can Timothy do in some of these situations? Who are you to come and tell us what to do? But Paul leaves a letter in his name, whom Ephesus knows, because he's their founder, and says, listen to Timothy, my son in the faith. It's almost like a, this is my son, hear him moment, isn't it? That's power and support. And that Timothy needed to do what he was to do. We need to support. I think of the past, the patriarchs in the Old Testament, how you would have the famous episode of Isaac getting towards the end of his life. And what does he have to do with um, his sons? He has to pass on the family blessing, right? There is this moment, and we see it in the Old Testament and in ancient cultures, there's a moment where youth become adults, where the older generation looks at them and says, it's time. And what they do is they don't just sit back and say, well, when will they grow up? They come to them and they say, this is your initiation. This is the moment. Even Judaism still has the bar mitzvah. And that's huge. It teaches the kid, this is my, I'm now arriving. I'm, I need to learn to be a second half person of life, live in the second half. And we need pillars who are willing to do this with our youth. Youth pastors can't always do this because they're too much like the youth often. We, we need, we need the, you know, coming from other sources to show that it's not just the youth pastor who cares about the kids only. There is a whole church that cares about them. And they're willing to say, it's time. Here is the blessing the grandfatherly blessing to you to go rise, inherit, to go lead, be a pillar. We need the commissions. That also is support. And that is also what Paul's doing in this letter to Timothy. Let's ask God for 2016 to be a year where we can, we can find, and I think all ages can find this, a son or daughter in desperate need of a spiritual mother or father. 